Yeah. It can event. Yeah. I'm in the search for peace, at least. In a better spot to settle. My brother said the Americans haven't got a ghetto. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show, Community Spread. I'm your host, Kevin Lundell. And today on the pod, we have George Garwood. George Garwood is the former mayor of South Ogden and also the first black mayor of Utah. And this is a a conversation that I recorded a a few months ago, but also a really important one. George has lots of insights, both in uh, being a leader in his community, also growing up in this community as a black man. And I think we, you're just going to learn a lot from him and his experiences. So look forward to that conversation. But now I just wanted to share with you a little bit about what I've been thinking about and what I've been learning about. And recently, I've really been thinking about what the NBA players recently did as they decided to strike and not take the floor for uh, the recent NBA games. And this all starts with the Milwaukee Bucks, who live and, and play about 40 miles away from where Jacob Blake was shot in the back seven times by police. And, you know, apparently this happened very spontaneously uh, as they are having conversations about how they can respond to this event. One of their players had even taken, one or two of their players had even taken the floor already for their warmups. And Orlando, the other team, was, was on the floor. And they're having these discussions and they decide on their own, unilaterally, without input from the league, from other players, that they are not going to take the floor. And as word spreads that they're not going to take the floor, the teams that are, uh, that are scheduled to play later decide they're not going to take the floor. And Major League Baseball and Major League Soccer decide that they're not going to play as well. And it spreads. And there's a a women's tennis player that decides she's not going to play either. And all these players stand together in solidarity for justice and for peace. And it was just a moment that I can't stop thinking about. And as I watched the public's reaction and I watched the owners rally around these players and say, whatever they want. We're going to stand by them. We're going to, we're going to support them. They are, they are going through an unimaginable pain right now. And we're going to stand by them and we're going to support them. And I couldn't help but contrast that with what happened to Colin Kaepernick. You know, Colin Kaepernick decides in 2016 that he's going to kneel for the national anthem. He's still going to take the field, mind you, afterwards, but he's just going to kneel, uh, and draw attention to police brutality. Colin Kaepernick loses his job. He ends up being forced out of the league. The owners uh, tell their players that they cannot kneel. And this was only four years ago that this happened, that an NFL football player was forced from the league because he decided to kneel during the national anthem peacefully, while showing solidarity against police brutality. That Now, you turn this fast forward to 2020, the, Salt, the Real Salt Lake owner, he comes out and says, well, when those players didn't take the floor, I thought it was such a sign of disrespect. Disrespect to who? 
disrespect to him. He believed it was disrespectful to him, the owner, that they chose not to take the floor. Well, and the field, I guess, in that case. And what happens in this case? The Real Salt Lake owner ends up having to sell the team because there has been a movement that has happened over the last four years, a movement where the public, the people, we are supporting social justice and it's conversations uh, and people standing up like those players did. I thought it was just incredible, the bravery that they put on display. And that's what we, you know, a little piece of, of what we can do is to keep these conversations moving forward. Because guess what? Support for Black Lives Matter is waning right now. There's violence. The president of the United States is trying to leverage any sort of violence that happens out of those protests. And support for Black Lives Matter is waning. And we need to keep these conversations going in a positive direction. And that's what we are doing here. And George is a, is a great uh, advocate and somebody that we can, we can learn from in this moment as we try, try to keep the momentum going so that we can build to some positive policy that will create some positive change in the future. So I hope you really enjoy, enjoy this conversation with George Garland. Look how far we don't came, we made it to this land of surprise. Though the prophecy says we all been to a bride. Spread the word, let it be known the heavens had to survive. Right here, live in the flesh. Hey, everybody. I've got my good friend George with me. Um, I grew up, uh, George and I, uh, well, I grew up in the same neighborhood uh, as George long time ago. Um, and we were in the, the LDS Fourth Ward uh, here in uh, South Ogden, Utah. And, you know, I thought it was pretty naturally natural that I would reach out to George um, because probably growing up, living in Utah, he might have been the only black person I knew. <laughs> and um, also, you know, uh, George was the uh, first black mayor in all of Utah, which is really neat. Uh, he was the mayor of South Ogden from 2002 to 2010. Is that right, George? That's correct. Uh, and so I want to share with you some of the other, uh, you know, he has quite a record of public service. And so he's just a great resource for us to um, uh, reach out and talk to about uh, race and about uh, politics and, and some other things. So he was the, the mayor of South Ogden from 2002 to 2010. Um, he was uh, six years as a member of the South Ogden City Council. He was a member of the Salt Lake Olympic Committee, uh, the chairman of Ogden Community Action, Commu Action Committee. He was a member of the board uh, of the National League of Cities Public Safety and Crime Prevention Committee. And he's also a retired member of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. And one of my obvious memories of George is him uh, leading the, uh, the congregation and the, choir, and the ward choir growing up and, and have great memories of, of hearing George's voice. Uh, oh, no matter where you sat in the, in the pews, you could hear George's voice. <laughs> so George, tell us a little bit about um, your history. When, when, uh, we're going to make you reveal when you were born, so it gives us some context. <laughs> but tell us oh, when you were born. I'm getting too old for this. <laughs> well, I'll tell just say one thing. I forgot something. Yeah, I worked for 31 years for the state of Utah 
in the Department of Public Safety. So I held administrative hearings on civil matters of law. So if you ever had too many tickets or you got picked up for drugs or, or DUI, I, I may have been your hearing officer and I apologize if you lost your license. <laughs> I'm laughing because I distinctly, now that you mentioned that, I distinctly remember my brother Brian happened to have quite a few meetings with you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make sure we tag him in this interview. <laughs> okay. Well, I see. Um, well, I came to Utah when I was 15 years old. My parents moved to Twila, Utah. And you, you talk about something that was an eye-opener. I went from living in a city of St. Louis with almost uh, a million people to a city of uh, St. Uh, Twila, where there's, oh, I think there's maybe 8,000, 8 to 10,000 then. And now it's really grown. Uh, and it was interesting as I, I grew up and moved to Twila, um, there, was only, there was only a handful of black people in Twila. Matter of fact, in my high school class, there were two of us. And there was, there was me, my name is George. And then the girl who's in my class, her name was Georgella. <laughs> so what, that, year, what year did you graduate? We'll get at it that way. <laughs> Uh, well, let's see. This is my 45th high school graduation. 45th high school graduation. I can't do the math on top of my head. 65. Did I get it right? So it's 75. <laughs> 75. 75. 75. So, yeah, I'm a class of 75, 12 of Buffalo. Uh, and in high school, I was active in activities. I was... Uh, I was the sophomore class president. Uh, my senior year, I was a student body officer. And of all things, uh, the office that I held as a student body officer was the judge. So it, it's kind of ironic that later on in life, I went on to, to, to kind of serve as a judge, and especially to get involved in, in politics. Politics must just be in your blood then, all the way back from high school, huh? Tell me, um, know. you know, <laughs> tell me, uh, you know, as you, I mean, you obviously have this, this history and you become the, the mayor of South Ogden. Um, tell me, you know, uh, we, our last conversation I had with my friend Michael, we talked about uh, systemic racism and, and headwinds and tailwinds. And we, we, um, and that the way we like to describe systemic, uh, systemic racism is that, um, sometimes black people face these headwinds uh, because of the color of their skin and because of the systems in place uh, as they grow up and try to uh, thrive uh, in, in America. Did you have any experiences like that uh, where you felt like you were facing, facing headwinds as you, uh, in your career and your rise in politics and, and things like that? Oh, yeah. Going, going back to my childhood. <coughs> Excuse me for a minute. Going back to my childhood, is especially, I'll, I'll just kind of start with my story uh, of arriving in Twila. You know, I grew up in St. Louis where I was uh, in the majority, I guess, I, at least in my neighborhood and in my school because you know, I lived in a black neighborhood, predominantly black neighborhood. Uh, 
I went to a predominantly black school, and all of a sudden I was thrust into this different world and didn't know quite how I was going to fit into it, you know. But one of the things that my mother helped me to do in fitting into this was I remember the first day of school where she sat all of us down, and at that time there were four children. I was the oldest of the four children who moved with my mom and dad to Utah. She sat us down, and she said, you know, you're going to go and you're going to be surrounded by people who look a lot different than you look. And I don't want you to go there with a chip on your shoulder. She says, I'm sending you to school to get educated. And that's what I expect you to do. And so I always went to school uh, with the idea that I was going there to be educated. I wasn't going to go there and pick a fight or have a chip on my shoulder because I was black. You know, this was shortly after uh, the civil rights movement of the uh, of the uh, 60s and the early 70s. And so I was accepted pretty, pretty good. I, I, I had really no real problems, even with the, even the, if you knew Twila in those days, you had, you had the uh, Hispanics and you had uh, the, uh, the cowboys, you know. And so I was kind of a, I was kind of in no man's land. And so, um, you know, I, I was really well accepted. You know, I, I had a talent that I loved to sing. And so music played a great important part of my life as I started integrating into this new, you know, community. Uh, you know, I got into the school choir and I sang. And, and, and then uh, I've always been a religious person. Uh, so I've always I've always liked to go to church, and for uh, I I belong to an all black church, uh, AME Zion Church was a denomination, African Methodist Episcopal Zion, in St. Louis, which there are none in Utah. Uh, Utah has the AME Church, which is the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and the only one of those that I knew that was the closest was in Salt Lake. Uh, which was Trinity. So I went there for a while, and then I thought, well, I wasn't old enough to drive, and so I thought, well, I'll just, I'll go to the local, you know, Methodist church, and I went there. But then I had neighbors who were LDS, and as you know, Latter-day Saint people, they like to invite you to, to come out. And that was, that was a really different experience. Because uh, this, you know, we're talking about the early 70s. And so this was before the, the ban on the priesthood was lifted. And so it was unusual for a black person to be in a, a LDS congregation. Okay. And, you know, getting on the, I had to ride a school bus, which I'd never ridden before. And we went through this little town, if you've ever heard of Stockton, Utah. And it's just a little farming community and ranching community. And the kids there were pretty much your typical, I won't say rednecks, but yeah, rednecks. <laughs> Some of them were. It's interesting how people 
after after over 45 years people view themselves in such a different light so but uh you know i mean sitting on the bus you know there were some people who didn't want you to sit by them for some reason and you know uh, you would hear they would say things uh kind of under their breath but but loud enough that you could hear it you know i don't think i ever had anybody call me the the n-word no but you know i went there with an open mind you know and so i i became quite involved uh, in school and then in church started going to seminary i was in the seminary course and even uh, conducted the seminary course uh, when our when our adult conductor wasn't around i guess they thought that you know being black you have to be musical <laughs> if I felt any, uh, if I if if I ever felt any uncomfortable or prejudices, I don't know. You know, I was a freshman, and everybody thought I was a senior. So because I I hung around with all the seniors that year, and so they they always had my back, and it was like that all the way through high school. Um, yeah, I, I joined different. I was I was a member of the. I I was in the school plays. And then the <laughs> well, other, tell me another. Go ahead. You. I'm going to direct me where you think you want me to sure, go. Sure, sure. I'm in. I'm going to circle back to the to since you brought up uh, joining the church. Uh, um, tell me what it was like. So that you joined the church in what year? Uh, I was baptized on April the sixth, nineteen seventy-two. Nineteen seventy-two. Six years. Six years before um, the, the, the priesthood ban was was lift, lifted, um, and so tell me about that experience. Um, were you when that happened? Were uh, were did you were you shortly thereafter ordained to the priesthood and did and to, to the well, temple and different things like that? What, what? I went all the way through school, high school. I finished high school. Graduated from high school, graduated from seminary, went to school at Utah State University, and I never gave it much thought about, you know, the priesthood much thought. But then, when all, I went to Utah State and all my roommates were getting ready to go on, on their missions, and so I thought, oh, I'd like to go on a mission. So I went to my bishop, and this, this shows you how bishops at that time were very not very knowledgeable about how to approach the subject what happened was i went to my bishop and we talked about me going on a mission and we kind of started the paperwork and then all of a sudden when we when we really got serious about it and i know this was so hard for him it was probably harder for him than it was for me for him to tell me that I couldn't go on a mission because I didn't, I couldn't hold the priesthood because of the color of, of my skin and my race. And, and that was really, it was really kind of hard for me, I'll say, in the sense that, you know, I was, I was 15 when I joined the church and I had to get permission from my parents 
And my mother did not think that it was the best thing to do. My father really didn't care, but 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 my mother just kind of said, you know, okay, you know, she thought it was a fad and I would I would join the church and get disinterested and you know, and then I'd go back to whatever I'd been before. I, I was actually raised Methodist. So, so you so you um you you met with the bishop and he told you you couldn't go because no. this was this was obviously pre, really, this was probably it, it this was, was pre nineteen seventy eight. Yeah, well, yeah, and this was in I I started school at Utah State in seventy five seventy six was my first school year, and I went home, and I just I didn't talk to about it with my parents, and finally my mother asked me one day she says well, aren't you going to go on a mission? And I said, oh, you don't have to go. I said, you don't have to go if you don't want to, and I, I don't really want to go. And uh, it, it really hurt me. But I went back to school, and I worked and, and did all those things. And in, in 1978, uh, in June of 70, well, in January of 78, I moved to South Ogden. And that's kind of kind of where you kind of came into my life during that time. Uh, I moved to South Ogden and still didn't have the priesthood. I was a sophomore in college, didn't have the priesthood. And, and I, I wouldn't say I strayed away from the church, but I didn't make the church a priority. I, I didn't always attend my meetings. You know, I went if I wanted to go. If I didn't want to go, I didn't go, you know. But the church, as you know, tends to follow you. Yeah. And so when I moved here, I moved here in January 78, called and found out who the bishop was. And uh, I had a roommate from Utah State who moved here with me. And he was, he was white. And, you know, we found the bishop. And I, and I just from what I could hear on my side of the conversation, I could hear, I could understand that the bishop was asking my roommate, uh, what was his priesthood? And he said, elder. And he said, well, what priesthood is George? And my roommate hesitated. And finally he said, well, 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 uh, George is black. So um, tell me the, uh, so tell me the, you know, the, then, so that's June of 78, then 78 happens. And then how do you go about uh, asking for the priesthood? And what was it like to kind of integrate uh, the, the priesthood in the LDS church in Utah? Well, I, a couple of weeks after the revelation, I was ordained a, I was ordained a priest. And so I, I had the opportunity to, to, pass, to pass the sacrament. And, and that in itself is a story because the first person that I ever passed the sacrament to was Elder Thomas S. Monson, who later became president of the church. And it was in Salt Lake. I had just been ordained that day, the 18th of June. And so there was a special meeting of what we called the Genesis branch, which is a black branch of the church that met in Salt Lake. And on that day, we met in the uh, in Salt Lake at the Old Liberty Stake Center in Salt Lake City, and you know, 
I was asked to participate in the passing of the sacrament. And I just happened to be in the position where I took it to, the to those sitting on the stand. And so Thomas S. Monson was the first press, press, I mean, the first person that I passed the sacrament to. And I, I thought that was a real, later in life, I didn't think too much of it then, but later in life I thought, you know, that was a, that was a neat experience. And later in life I, I wrote him about it and I wrote him a letter about it and he, he remembered that day. So I, I was impressed. Pretty, his, pretty historic I, I, day. I'm sure he remembers, yeah. you know, a lot of that time. Um, tell me, did you, uh, you know, I don't, I didn't, I didn't live through that time. Were there uh, members of the church who were, who, you know, shied away or who, was there any sort of pushback? Yes. I mean, I had, I had, I had people, members of the church who, if I passed the sacrament, they would, they would refuse to take it from me. Wow. That's hard. How did that make you feel? You know, it, 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 it troubled me. And I, and I, I, at times in my, in my life as a member of the church, I wouldn't say I went inactive. I just kind of strayed away a little bit. But then whenever I thought about leaving the church, um, I, I would always come back to that same feeling that I had when I was 15 years old and I knelt down to, to ask if the church was true. And if the church was true, then I needed to overlook all those prejudices and, and things that people had, and those stereotypes of blacks. Interesting, really interesting experiences there. Well, let's, um, let's kind of talk a big, uh, fast forward a little bit to the present day and what's going on now. I know you, you, we, we talked earlier and you mentioned that, um, the, that um, there, you kind of lived through uh, some of the riots. I mean, you were really young at some of the riots in the 60s um, and the protests in the 60s. Uh, and how do those differ from what you're seeing with protests today? And, and, and what's that experience like having, you know, having it being separated uh, by that many decades? Uh, what, how is it the same? How is it different? Oh, yeah. I, as I, you know, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. And I remember when Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated and the riots that took place in, in almost every major American city at the time. <clears throat> uh, you know, the looting, the rioting. I mean, the people were angry because here we had been taught that, you know, Dr. King talked about nonviolence. You know, he wanted us to achieve our, our rights by being nonviolent. And here, he was assassinated and killed, and, and people lost all perspective of what was going on. And so you had in the, and, and it was especially in the, in the black communities where the rioting took place and the burning and the looting took place. And, um, you know, and I moved to all, you know, all major cities and eventually to downtowns, you know, uh, downtowns back in the 60s and 70s was a lot different 
than the downtowns I think of most major cities today. It was it was a shopping center. It was it was where we we conducted all of our business, where we you know we bought you know you go shopping for for, for clothes, for furniture, and everything. I look at it today at what's happened, and I think I think we have a twofold situation. We have a situation where for the last oh, three and a half years, we've had a president who for the most part has advocated, uh, how do I say it? Uh, superiority, white supremacy, um, and has, um, has not tried to bring this country together. Yeah. And so, and then you have that which has gone on with the, with law enforcement in, in cities where there has been uh, deaths that have been caused by uh, to African Americans or black, black, uh, black Americans that were uncalled for. And I think people are just rising up and saying, you know, we've had enough. We've had enough. Uh, you know, we, we supposedly we have the same rights and privileges as any other American. You know, we were granted, we were granted citizenship through the, I, what, I'm trying to think, I think it was the, was 14th it the 20th? Amendment. 14th, 14th Amendment. Amendment. I just listened yeah. to a podcast about this. I'm not really that smart. <laughs> so, you know, it was through the 14th Amendment that we gained citizenship, you know. So we have all the rights and privileges of any, any other American. Uh, you know, and going to, and just, I'm just going to jump, jump around here for a minute because I'm going to jump into my political life here. Yes, I love that. When, when I was running, especially when I was running, being, running for city council, and that started in 1995 is when I started running. I was elected and started my service in 96. But I knew in a, in, a, in a community like South Ogden, where I was really a minority, less than 1% you know, of the population of South Ogden is black. And for me to go door to door and knock on people's doors, you know, a black man knocking at you, on your door at 6 o'clock or 8 o'clock at night, you know, and people peeking out and looking, you know, and you have to smile and say, oh, you know, I'm running for city council. And it was even funnier as I ran for mayor because I had had six years of service that he had behind me. And so people could see what I had done. And so when I went out uh, and I, I, people looked at me and they knew who I was because they'd seen me in the newspaper, they'd seen me in council meetings, they'd seen me in parades. So they, I wasn't like a stranger. But the one thing that I didn't want to happen is I was contacted by the Salt Lake Tribune, and they wanted to do a story on, they says, you know, you, you, you could be the first 
African-American mayor in the state of Utah. And I mean, you really have a chance. And I said, well, yeah, I think so. And uh, they wanted to play up this story about the first black mayor. And I didn't want that. I says, I, I says, I want people to vote for me, not because I'm black, but because they feel that they've seen the work that I've done. And there's an old gospel that says, may the work I've done speak for me. And I think that's what I wanted. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be the black candidate. I wanted to be George Garwood, who was willing to go out there and he wanted to serve. So, and so that's what I did. Is, and that's how I ran. And I had some really good experiences with people that when I knocked on their doors and they, I had one lady who in central South Ogden, uh, I knocked on her door one evening and she opened the door and she says, says, you're the legend. She says, I've heard of you. You're the man and you're the legend. And she says, I'm voting for you. That's that's really neat. That's really neat. Um, then I, you, go ahead. Go ahead. What did you say? No, you go. No, you go ahead. <laughs> Get me back on track. <laughs> well, I was just going to say. Talk you know, day. Well, I love it. I love hearing your experiences of of campaigning. Uh, you know, and and what that's like, and and uh, and it's it's super interesting. Tell me, uh, you know, uh, you you talked a little bit about. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the protests happening now. Um, why, why do you think this, it is this moment in time right now that, that this, this historic moment where it seems like, you know, even if you look at polling, it, like, it's, it's, it looks like just there's this huge turn where people are starting to, to, to notice, uh, and it's white people are starting to notice that there's, well, no, there's we're, systemic we're, racism. We're, 60, we're, we're, you know, 50 to 60 years later. You know, what's happening today happened, uh, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, you know, with the civil rights movement. We've had, we've had so many generations in between there, you know, who have grown up without a lot of these, these prejudices and, and discrimination. I mean, they're used to, I mean, you probably, you have kids and they're used to, I don't know if they have black kids in their school, but I'm sure they're used they're they're used to having kids of all different races and nationalities. You know, even you as a as a graduate of Bonneville High School <laughs> right. had had lots of experiences with different nationalities in your in in your years in going to public schools. And so we've been integrated. And so now when, when, when we have a, a movement in this country by certain people of privilege, and I'll use that word, uh, who want to turn back the clock, uh, I think people are saying, that's just not right. That's, that's not, that's not how, how it's supposed to be, you know? And so you know, it's like going back to the looting and the, the, the protest. The protests have been peaceful, but I think you've had a fashion group of people who have gotten involved who are the ones who have started the looting 
and the violence and the burning of buildings, you know, that has just gotten out of hand, you know. And the thing yeah. that I noticed so much different from the 60s is that it's not just the blacks that are out there protesting or rioting, but it's people of every nationality. Because they're saying, if it can happen to you, it's going to happen to me. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that's interesting what you, uh, what you said there, because you were talking about the protests in the 60s and about how in that time, uh, you know, there, the protests were about, um, you know, full integration and, and um, as that has, has happened and occurred, we've had integration, as you said, and people have uh, grown up shoulder to shoulder with different, with different races. Uh, now, uh, the protests are about equality and uh, in, in a, in a, in a different way, in, in a way in which we, we can look at our past and say, well, there are some injustices that have happened, not only in our past, but there are current injustices happening, happening every day. Um, you know, even when you look at, at, uh, at voting rights, uh, you know, I was something I've just, you know, I, I've learned is, is, you know, that the 15th amendment that followed the 14th amendment was the, was in 19, was ratified in 1870, which gave, uh, black people the right to vote. But the, the civil rights act wasn't until 1965 that actually a hundred years later, a hundred years later that took away all of these bad, terrible, terrible practices that disenfranchise black people. And, and you know, and it actually, it, it's still occurring today. Uh, you know, in, 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 in 2017, a North Carolina law was struck down by a federal court that said, because they said it, uh, it targeted the African-American community with surgical precision. And that's an exact quote in 2017. Uh, so, you know, just because our rights are are in the Constitution doesn't necessarily uh, mean that they're they're safe. So That's yeah, I, I, you know, I that was I, I didn't you know I I didn't I didn't even know that you know it took a, a hundred years plus for for even though it was written into law uh, for for black people to be able to vote. The law needed to be enforced. And so we, you know, this is why we've had amendments uh, to the Bill of Rights and, you know, to the Constitution to guarantee those, those rights and privileges. You know, we can say it, but sometimes it's not as clear as, as we think it is for some people to understand. You know, when, when I turned 18, when I, I could vote at the age of 18, and when I turned 18, I was the first group to be able to vote at the age of 18. And my mother took me down and got me registered and made sure that I voted and instilled in me how important it was to have that right to vote and to, 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 to have my voice be heard and to stand up for what I believe. And I've done that all of my life. When I listen to these people who say that, you know, oh, I don't vote or I'm not registered, uh, 
I go, well, you know, then you, you, you're punishing yourself. You're doing a disservice to yourself because you're not, you're not being involved in the process. Yeah. I mean, think about, I mean, your mom sounds like a, like an incredible woman, uh, but you know, think about the, the era that she lived through and, um, you know, with, with black people getting the right to vote and, and women and, you know, and so she obviously instilled that in you because it was something that she uh, and, and the people of her generation earned. That's right. Yeah, that's really, that's really incredible to, to think about. And the only way that people can, can make real change is by, is, you know, like they say, with your feet. You have got to, you've got to vote. And it is so easy today to vote. I mean, you don't have to stand in line. You can get it by mail. Uh, you, you, you have early voting. You've got all these things, but still such a small percentage of Americans are voting in any yeah, election. It's only like a third, even in presidential elections, I believe, yeah. uh, of Americans that are voting and, and you know, it is certainly easy here in Utah, which is great. I voted today, by the way. Since that's pretty, it's pretty interesting since we're we're talking on, I voted on primary the day. <laughs> I was a little uh, uh, slow there. I, I did. I didn't go. I did uh, use my mail-in ballot and dropped it in the box. But I, I waited. I procrastinated a little, but I got it done. <laughs> but you know, when you talk about Black Lives Matter, and we'll go to that, I can understand what's going on. It's hard to, it's hard for me to put it into words to say, as I've looked at, you know, the, the video of what, uh, the, the, uh, the black guy, George in what, Minnesota, George Minneapolis, mm -hmm. uh, was it, which state, was it in Minneapolis? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, my minor was geography. <laughs> uh, which is something I think we need to bring back because obviously it's a, it's a subject that was um, brushed over uh, by our present president <laughs> when he was in school. <laughs> that's, for, that's for sure. Tell him, go back to, go back to George Floyd and, and what you're, what you were talking okay, about. George there. Floyd. <laughs> yeah. Um, I look at what happened and when you hear it, it, it breaks my heart when you can hear him, his voice, when he calls out, I can't breathe. And then when he took his last breath and he called, he called his mother, you know, I look at that and I say, how could somebody hold their knee on somebody's neck for that long? that it takes the breath out of them. Yeah. Takes the life right out of them, you know? Well, yeah, it does. You were saying, as the mayor? As the mayor of a city, one of my primary responsibilities when I took the oath of office was the same oath as many politicians take to protect and defend 
the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution of Utah, between enemies, foreign and domestic. And when I look at that, and and I, I you know, and so I was basically over all public safety in Salvo. We never had anything of that magnitude, but we had issues that I had to deal with, with officers who people thought they were mistreated or they were discriminated against. Yeah. And I don't, in, in my eight years as mayor, I don't think I ever had to dismiss an officer for inappropriate uh, actions uh, like anything like we're seeing today. And I'm glad I didn't because I think it, it, it would be hard. And it's hard for anybody who's in the position, like a mayor or a police chief, to, to deal with people but like that. But you know, you're always gonna have a bad apple. I worked for the state for 31 years and there was a certain highway patrolman that was arresting people and making, you know, falsifying reports and information and I knew that person. And I, I caught that person in a lie. And after that, I would never believe anything that they said. And once you've lied to me, your credibility is gone. But we, we, need, we need people to understand that, that it is not right to kill people just because or and then the language that they use, this is what gets me. I mean, this was caught on a body cam and, you know, and they laughed and they joked about it. And that even made it worse, you know? Yeah, really because, awful. You know, that man's life wasn't worth, it, worth a plug nickel to them. I mean, he may have had a, he may have had a record and he may have had some issues in his life, but if he's paid his price, if he's gone to jail or he's paid his fines and he's done all that he's been asked to do by society, he should have the same rights and privileges as you and I. Absolutely, absolutely. And your, uh, your, your mom and your uh, ancestors fought so hard for that. And, um, you know, that those rights need to, and to, but just because, like I said, just because they're written down in the constitution does not mean they're safe. And, and we need to continue to fight for those. And so, um, you know, I really appreciate you just having this conversation with me and I hope we can all hearken back to your words about how, you know, we have to, uh, you know, we have to get out and we have to vote and we have to, um, you know, do the work. And so I'm going to, I'm going to keep, keep up on that and encourage uh, uh, others to as well. Do you have any, uh, word, uh, any, any uh, positive thing you want to add to our conversation to end on a high note or anything like that? Well, I'm just glad that we're doing this on the primary day, June the 30th here in Utah. And, and I have always thrown my support behind people that I, I think best represent what I believe and what I think we need in this, this country. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it was a pleasure 
George, I really appreciate you. It's uh, just good to, to hear your voice again um, and, and see you, and uh, hopefully we'll stay in touch. Okay, yeah, and anytime you want to want me to come back on, I've got plenty of stories. We'll do it. We'll do it again. Thanks, George. You have a good one. Hey, hey thanks. And that's the show for today. I want to thank George Garwood for coming on the pod. Also, thank August the Great for that wonderful theme music you've heard today. Uh, and Decker Yazi for our wonderful cover art. Also, you may notice that the production value over here at uh, Community Spread is improving. And that has a lot to do with the fact that we have a new producer. So we have to thank uh, Dan Martinez who is now mixing and editing and producing the show. Uh, They have a a company called Deep State Media, and they have some other podcasts. So you might want to jump over and check out Junction City Podcast, uh, who are also doing really, really wonderful things. Uh, But So don't forget to punch that subscribe button first here on Community Spread, then maybe jump over to Junction City Podcast and check out what they're doing over there. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. I'd rather tell the truth while kicking this rhyme straight Half the people illiterate, can't read or write Try to enlighten them, they tell you we don't need your light See how early we leave college, straight up to the gig We don't get to graduate, we get trade up to the league With no second plan, hoping we got it made into a gig We need more doctors and lawyers, politicians and that If you feel this in your heart, then I'm probably kicking the fat touche And they talk to your power and shout here Everybody's dead broke and impoverished, y'all swear I leave the everyday life based on mad wishes The only jobs they have was provided by bad bitches They'd rather get some brain and law that broad knowledge Can't pay back selling me and we can't afford college Around here the stick is always high so they ban Screaming fuck the law, they'd rather leave and die for their gangs They got nothing to lose but they sick with hate Mad at the world, we got a bone to peak with faith It's a white privilege for the kids to the slave master We were left for dead design to hit the great faster It's a setup, and we ain't meant to survive Look how far we don't came, we made it to this land to surprise Though the prophecy says we all been to a bride Spread the word, let it be known the heavens had to survive Right here, live in the flesh That's real Americans said we gotta get up <laughs> Volume 1